continuing on in a series of messages I've called Our Peace in Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at a broken wall. A broken wall. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> we hear a lot about walls these days. Uh, I thought about the American poet Robert Frost's famous poem, Mending Wall. In it, he described how that he and his neighbor would go out every spring for their annual ritual of repairing the stone wall that separated his apple orchard from his neighbor's pine trees. He was said in the poem to have remarked that really this wall was in the wrong place. He said, you know, your pine trees are not a threat to my apple orchard, and my apple orchard is not a threat to your pine trees. But his neighbor simply shrugged and said, good fences make good neighbors. And when he inquired in the poem as to why good fences make good neighbors, the man actually couldn't give him a response. He just said it again. Good fences make good neighbors. He began it by saying, this whole poem, by saying something there is that doesn't love a wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. I remember listening to an American president talk about a wall. So famously so that it would come to almost characterize his entire presidency. It was 1987. The president was Ronald Reagan. The wall was between East Berlin and West Berlin. And like you, you might can remember Ronald Reagan saying to Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Within two years, it was gone. Shortly to be followed by what was once known as the Soviet bloc. Although uh, the rivalry, obviously, with Russian communism continues. That was a pivotal moment. Tear down the wall. Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you, I'm not here to comment on every time that we put up a wall. If you've got a wall around your backyard, I'm not going to be preaching at you today. I know you've got that. You like that. I don't have one around mine. Uh, there is something in me that doesn't like a wall. Uh, I, I kind of like that old country music song from long, long ago, Don't Fence Me In. Uh, that was put out, by the way, long before I was born. Uh, but I still remember hearing about it. Uh, many, many walls are in places that are very, very important. They serve uh, fine functions. But as we're going to see as we go across the course of this message, Paul is going to be talking about uh, what was known as the middle wall in our text, also called famously the Gentile wall. It was located in the temple in Jerusalem. 
and it symbolized the difference that God's law had made between the Jews and everybody else called the Gentiles over and over again in Ephesians 2 and other places. When you say Jew and Gentile, you've talked about the Jews and everyone who isn't Jewish. And so all of humanity uh, then was placed in, in, and given that distinction. There was the wall. It was in a way a symbol of Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 24 where God said to Moses, I've said unto you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God which have separated you from other people. And the symbol of that separation came to be that middle wall inside the temple. You see, if you were born a Gentile, you could embrace Israel's God. And in fact, Isaiah would talk about that, and we'll uh, see that later on in the message. He, he could talk about how the stranger could worship God and serve God. But there was only so far in Judaism you could go. And that was to the Gentile wall. That was it. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the Gentile wall was still standing. It would stand until 70 A.D. when the temple itself was destroyed by the Romans. So what I want you to understand right up front this morning when Paul is talking about how that Jesus Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition, he was not talking about a wall made of brick and stone and mortar. But he was talking about the separation, the division between the Jew and the Gentile of which that wall was only a symbol. And let me tell you something this morning. It's a whole lot easier to tear down a wall made of brick and stone and timber than it is the walls in our hearts and our minds. Those are a lot tougher. How tough are they? Well, Jesus had to go to the cross of Calvary to tear down this one. It fell at a very high, high price. Obviously, we can't uh, claim victory in this text this morning and say that because Jesus Christ has torn down the middle wall of partition between the Jew and the Gentile, that no such division exists anymore. That the Jew and the Gentile today dwell together in perfect harmony. That is not the record of history. It is certainly not the record of our culture today. There may be something in us that doesn't love a wall, but there is something that does love them. And again, not so much the walls of stone and mortar, but the walls that we build in our hearts and our minds to other people. It's one thing to talk about peace. It's another thing to live it out. As long as the walls are staying up in our hearts and minds toward other people, then we're really not living out our privileges as children of God. Because Jesus Christ came to give us peace. Remember, He made peace. He is our peace. He preaches peace. This morning we're going to find out how that, that actually takes place. The actions that He took in order to make peace. We'll see it there in our text. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
and to create in himself one new man uh, from the two, thus making peace. Three verbs are used in that passage concerning the works of Jesus Christ, what he made, what he broke down, and what he abolished. I love that word, abolished. And they describe what he did for us. First of all, he reconciled us spiritually. He has made, he said, both. And that's the Jew and the Gentile one. Where? In himself. He made both one. Romans chapter 10 and verse 12 says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Romans chapter 3 verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. There it is again. No difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody who is saved is saved exactly the same way. Everybody who isn't saved faces exactly the same eternal condemnation because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Everybody who is saved is equally saved. I'm very glad that I'm not going to have to spend eternity in heaven with whoever it is that would win the title of savedist. There is no difference. We all had the same salvation. We all had the same condemnation before we received Christ as our Savior. The word made in this instance refers to something done, finished. Nancy and I have often had a conversation. We still have it from time to time about how glorious it would be, how much fun it would be uh, to be a farmer. Now, I'm not going to tell you all of the situations about that that went along with that conversation. Just a little thing we say a lot. Oh, wouldn't it be fun to be a farmer? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I do not have green thumbs at all. My one attempt at growing a garden was a colossal failure. I'll say that another time. But the thing that I envy the most about being a farmer is being able to get to the end of the day and look back and see what you've actually done. I can see a field that's plowed. In a similar way, it would be fun to be a carpenter where you look back behind you and you see something that has been done. It is not in question. It's not debatable. The job is done. Finished. I did what I set out to do. I mentioned that to you this morning because when Jesus Christ says that He Himself is our peace and that He has made both one, He is looking at a finished product. There was nothing to be added to the work of Jesus Christ. He had completed it. He had done everything that had to be done in order to reconcile men with God and therefore to reconcile them with each other. Where once there was an old covenant when the Gentile basically had to become Jewish in order to worship God. But even then he could never enter into the fullness of relationship and, and worship and service that the Jews held because so much of that was reserved exclusively for the physical descendants of Abraham. But now Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
You see the same distinction. I mentioned this last week that was in reference to the uh, court of the Gentiles and created the court of the Gentiles in the Old Testament temple, also created the court of the women. It was only so far a woman could go in her relationship with God. So far a woman could go in the service of God. And yet now Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 gives us that marvelous instruction you are all one in Christ Jesus. He has created us in himself. That is the spiritual side of it. He's made it. Then he reconciled us practically. He says he's broken down the middle wall of partition. Now it's a great thing to notice that the Jew and the Gentile have been made one spiritually, but he didn't leave it there. Such things demand a concrete application. The mind longs for a concrete, physical application of something, and if we cannot find that, then typically our minds don't hold on to those things very well unless we can find an application. Um, I, I spent many years in mathematics uh, during my high school years, went all the way through calculus. Uh, I still remember a lot of those things I learned. I'm glad I can still add and subtract and multiply and divide. <laughs> I don't do it the same way kids are taught to do it today, uh, but I can still arrive at the right answer most of the time. Aren't you glad that you got those things down? Okay, isn't that a good thing? It uh, means you can balance your checkbook if you ever decide to do that and all kinds of things. Um, a lot of the more complicated things I don't remember, but I can tell you what I do remember the things that I've used. I know how to figure out how many square feet in a room because I've used it. I know how uh, to figure out how many cubic feet are in something because it's something that I've used. I know how to set up a ratio. It is something that I've used. The things you see that we keep in our minds typically are the things that we use that we find a concrete application for. I want you to understand this morning, you see, that Jesus Christ did not just leave this in the realm of spiritual truth as something to be enjoyed in the sweet by and by. But he gave it a concrete application. Paul said he has broken down the middle wall of partition. Now remember, I told you that middle wall of partition was still standing. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians in about 62 A.D. And the wall, along with all of the temple, would not be destroyed until about 70 A.D. So when he wrote this, that wall was still there. No doubt after Jesus Christ died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, no doubt they sewed the thing up and put it back. Don't you know that? But just the fact that they sewed it up and put it back did not mean that the veil was not still rent in two. It was. Because what Paul what the, uh, is telling us here about the wall and, and what Jesus was demonstrating there was that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant form of worship had been rendered forever obsolete. And it's been replaced then by something else. And that is where we go to practice our worship today, and that is in the New Testament church. The Jewish nation was a witness to the Gentile world concerning faith in God and their faith in the coming Messiah. But now... He has placed that responsibility of being a witness among his people. 
He gave that commission then to His church, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. By the way, did you notice that says all nations, all nations. Aren't you glad the apostles took that seriously? Aren't you glad the churches have been taking it seriously ever since? Otherwise, we'd be back under the policies that Isaiah mentioned in chapter 56 and verse 6 when he said, The sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taking hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer. For all peoples. But there was still the Gentile wall. What did the Jews think about that place? Well, when you go in the Gospels and you see that they had set up the money tables of the money changers and, and was carrying on all those practices of buying and the selling and the merchandising of people's religious devotion, where did they set that up? in the court of the Gentiles. Yeah. But now when Paul tells us that the wall has been broken down, he is telling us that when it comes to the worship of God, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, that all people who know Jesus Christ, who are willing to follow Him and serve Him and love Him, can come together and lift our voices together in worship and praise of Almighty God. The devil can do nothing about our spiritual unity in Christ. What Jesus has done, the devil cannot undo. He has made both one. However, he's been very effective at building walls back among God's people that keeps us from worshiping together. It makes sense when you think about it. If Jesus died, if He is our peace, if He died to make peace, if He preaches peace, then the devil's going to be the ultimate disturber of the peace. He's good at what he does. It's almost as if sometimes that he takes particular delight, and I'm talking about the enemy now, takes particular delight in going to those who enjoy this incredible peace. We have been uh, made at peace with God. We enjoy the peace with God. We have the peace of God that passes all understanding. But it's as if He takes particular delight in filling our life up full of turmoil. It's almost as if He said, you know, I can't undo what Jesus Christ has done. He's made peace. But you'll never enjoy a dime of what he died to pay for for you until you get to heaven. Too many of God's people end up living lives full of turmoil and division and drama. It delights the devil. It breaks the heart of God. 
Jesus Christ has come to give us peace, and He intends then for there to be a practical application of that. I don't have this in our uh, notes for you this morning, but if you looked at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, you would see that God there is talking about how He intends to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery, the mystery that the Jew and the Gentile would be made one in Jesus Christ. If all men can see it, folk, that means it's visible. And what is it that He wants everybody to see? the fellowship of the mystery. You know where he puts that fellowship on display? In local churches just like this one. That's where he does it. See, it's real easy for us to talk about, man, I, I love all God's people. Oh, yeah, you don't know all God's people. <laughs> I don't either. You don't have to rub shoulders with all of them. It's here in a church where we come together and we rub shoulders with all of our differences, all of our distinctions, all of our different ideas and, and different personalities. And we'd be foolish if we didn't admit that every now and then we kind of live out what the Proverbs talked about when iron sharpens iron. You know what happens when iron sharpens iron? Sure you do. The sparks fly. God has an amazing way of putting us together sometimes with people uh, that maybe just are a little bit of a challenge to us. Why does He do that? Because He is putting on display the fellowship of God's people to a watching world. You understand then why the devil likes a church fuss. He'd rather start a church fuss than just about anything. The distinctions that God has put together are very simple. The biblical requirements, I should say, of being a part of this worship fellowship that he describes in Jesus Christ because the walls are down. Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must, not should, not might, not can, but must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what God is looking for today, true worshipers. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's the Bible itself that becomes a matter of division among God's people. It shouldn't be that way. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He wrote what He wrote. And it is the same thing today that it was all those many centuries ago when He wrote it down to begin with. We haven't changed it, haven't revised it, gone through a lot of translations. I understand that. Some of them are good, some not so good. But the fact is, the Word of God is still the Word of God. I heard something the other day. I, I was astonished when I heard it. Was a, a young man was actually making the argument. This is exactly what he said. And I, I, I debated about whether I'd even put it in this morning, but it, it's going to come out. So <laughs> here it is. That's exactly what he said. How can you trust the Bible, he said, when it was written by a bunch of old white men? That's what he said. Now, undoubtedly, he was probably thinking because he had bought into a lot of that idea that the Bible was really written about the third century or so. Let me tell you something, that is not the truth. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I don't have time for the historical argument and the authenticity of the Bible. Uh, I've looked at it and looked at it and looked 
looked at it and looked at it, and the more I look at it, the more convinced that I am uh, that the people who wrote it are the ones whose names are on those books in the New Testament, and they are authentic and real. How many Gentile men wrote books in the New Testament? If you believe Luke was a Gentile, and that's a big if, tradition says that he was, but the Bible doesn't affirm that. It's just tradition. We do know that Luke was a Syrian. He grew up in Antioch in Syria. Again, that's tradition, but it's pretty well validated by early, early historical sources. If he was a Gentile, he was a Syrian. So you ask yourself the question, how many old white men wrote the New Testament? Zero. Zero. None. Not a one. Maybe one Gentile. And so all of this effort being put in to undermine biblical authority today, why, do, why does that go on? Well, because the Bible is so plain, and it's really difficult to misunderstand what it says most of the time. The most critical thing that anybody can ever understand is when the Bible tells us, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. That's right here in this very chapter. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's not hard to understand that. It's very simple. It's very direct. Oh, but my, there's a lot of arguing going on about it. And more as we go along. But still, this passage tells us that in Jesus Christ, He has torn down the wall. How did He do that? What are the actions of it? Well, He made us both, that is the Jew and the Gentile, He made us one. Uh, not only that, but He broke down the middle wall of petition that is between us so that we can worship together in spirit and in truth. And the last thing that He did is He reconciled us individually, having slain or abolished the enmity thereby. You see, it's one thing to be reconciled spiritually, something else to be reconciled practically, but it's still another thing to have that reconciliation go down in our hearts so that it takes the enmity away. Remember, those feelings of hostility and anger and resentment are given a name in this passage, enmity, enmity. So what Jesus Christ has done for us is designed to reach into our hearts and take away the hostility, the enmity that we would have toward other people. How do we get to that? He came, verse 17, and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh, for through him, through him, through him, we both have access uh, by one spirit unto the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Aren't you glad that for those who are in Christ, God's throne is a throne of grace and a throne of mercy? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Since Jesus Christ has made peace and broken down the middle wall and destroyed the hostility that's between us, 
We see the devil then working so hard to bring it. But listen, Jesus Christ is still giving us that access to God. We can go to the throne of mercy. You say, well, I don't know if I can deal with all this. I don't know if I can turn loose of all this. I don't know if I really can go up. I know that person's saved and I'm saved, but can I really go up to them and shake their hand and tell them that I love them in Jesus Christ? Can I sit by the same, by them in church, sit on the same pew with them and lift my voice together with them? and the worship of God. And it really happened. Thousands of years of human history, even more importantly, the truth of this book says it can happen and it does happen. Where sin and the world and hostility and anger and everything that goes on where politics and ideologies and different persuasions about different issues are constantly working to pull us apart. And I'm not going to tell you that Jesus Christ is going to make us all think the same way. Sometimes I wish He would. But then other times, I know better. I'm glad He doesn't. Our diversity is our greatest strength. But when hostilities break out among God's people, they can go way, way further than they ever should have. Sometimes the differences in our nation, even our national identity, can percolate all the way down to where it divides the people of God. I hear all the time that our nation is more divided today than it ever has been. I beg to differ. I think we were more divided in the days of 1860 to 1865 and the testament to that is found all over this country brother against brother father against son kinfolk against kinfolk it happened all over this country near the end of it in Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address he said this Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible. I'm sorry I can never read this without breaking up. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And then he quoted the words of Jesus Christ. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh.
We live in a radically divided world today, polarizing evermore. Thank God we are not seeing so much the bloodshed in our streets as is happening in other countries around the world. But rest assured that it is going on. And if I understand the scriptures, it's going to get worse until the whole world is one day caught up in the conflict. It will happen because the Word of God says it. What you and I need to take from all this this morning is understanding, just reemphasizing the truth that Jesus Christ, if you're saved this morning, has taken you and cleansed your sin by His own precious blood. Because you believed on Him, you trusted Him, He cleansed you of your sins. Anybody else who has been to Him in faith, they have been cleansed from the same sin. They've dealt at the same cross. they bowed before the same king. And if we'll look hard, sometimes we have to look hard, but if we'll look, we can find then that there is an incredible basis for us to be at peace with one another. May not always agree, but we can be at peace and live peaceably. Your Lord and mine said a mouthful long ago when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The devil loves to stir up drama in your life, and let me tell you something, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what he uses to do it. He'll use your kids to do it if you'll let him. He'll lose your business to do it if you'll let him. Leave, use your marriage to do it if you'll let him. He doesn't care. He could care less. Just as long as this watching world out here that looks at you and me, knowing that we're Christians and serve the living God, just as long as they can look in our life and see a life full of drama, then that's what he wants. He doesn't want them to be able to look and see a life full of peace, a peacemaker, a child of God. Oh, how today we need to hold on to that truth and not let the devil tear it out of our hands. He himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. Let's stand together, please.